Um, my name is Ernabelle DeMillo. I am the, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I am um, the host and one of the reporters for Asian American Life on CUNY TV. I should say Emmy winner because we won an Emmy this year along with the Telly Award. Thank you. Thank you. And a, a longtime member of the Asian American community here in New York and also a journalism professor and the chair of the communication department at a little university called St. Peter's University. If you are a basketball fan, you, yes, you know exactly what school I am talking about. Um, but it is my pleasure to be your moderator tonight. Uh, I did this actually last year for the uh, Queen City Council race, but it was all on Zoom, right? It was all online. So it's just kind of nice to be here in person, but this forum is also online. Um, and so I want to welcome not just the folks who came out here in person, but also people who are joining us via Zoom. Okay, so we got a lot of candidates here tonight. So thank you, first of all, to the candidates for coming out tonight. It's so good to see all of you. Um, so I'm going to, first of all, before we meet all of them, um, I want to give a little overview and also really talk about the importance of APA Voice for those of you who may not be familiar with the work that they do. So many of us know, right, that Asian Americans are the fastest growing community in New York City and New York State. And really the reason why New York's population bumped up is because of the Asian American, um, the, the increase in Asian Americans in New York. Um, so our community, you know, faces unique challenges that require the care and attention of policymakers. Um, and our community, right, deserves to hear from the candidates who are running to represent them in the nation's highest legislative body, especially for this newly created congressional district, uh, with nearly one quarter of the residents being Asian American. So APA Voice is a coalition that works together to increase civic awareness and engagement for the community, especially supporting members who are limited English proficient and also face significant um, barriers navigating this whole, you know, sometimes complicated political process. So for over a decade, they have organized by helping community members register to vote, leading voter education and also advocacy efforts, introducing candidates for office like they're doing today and elected representatives to the communities and also by centering immigration and language justice in the work that they do. So as a result, right, Asian American the voter base has grown significantly. The, co the coalition actually released a report entitled Asian American Voters and New York City's Primary Elections 2013 to 2022. And in City Council District 1, which includes Lower East Side and Chinatown, the Asian American voter participation rate grew 35% during this time period. Yeah, I mean, that that's significant. And in Sunset Park, Brooklyn's City Council District 38, voter participation rate grew by 150%. So this growth really represents thousands of newly activated AAPI voters who are really an important part of this newly created congressional district. And this newly created congressional district covers Chinatown, the Lower East Side, and Sunset Park. Both have a very large Asian American population. So the questions tonight were curated in partnership with 
APA Voices co-sponsors in hopes of not being duplicative, um, you know, with other forums. And also questions were submitted by the audience through the Google form, and they were examined and selected to use in this forum. So all I ask, the only rule for the candidates, because there's a lot, but we even did this, I think, last year um, for the city council race, to be aware of the time limit. And you will all have, and this is, makes my life easy, so thank you for the or, to the organizers, you will all have a minute for every section. And it's, it's almost like a game show. It's going to be fun. Um, and we have our two timers. We have Archer and Caitlin. Wait, 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 yeah, wave, wave, wave. They're going to raise the white flag, and that means that just wrap up, okay, before I have to wrap you up. Because unlike Zoom, I can't silence you. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so um, what we're going to do now, right? Oh, and also, we just also want to remind all the candidates just to speak slowly and also clearly because all of this is being interpreted, okay? Okay, and I know, and you got to do this all in a minute. My gosh, <laughs> I'm asking a lot of you. Okay, so now, now, are you ready to meet the candidates? Yes, yeah, okay. I need a little bit. I know, I know it's hot. We some enthusiasm here today. This is not Zoom. It's in person. Okay, so you all have one minute to introduce yourself, and I'll make this part easy. We're just going to start here. Hi, Joanne. We're going to start with Joanne, and you should have, wait, let me bring the mic. Hello? Okay. Thank you. Uh, so thank you to APA Voice and all the sponsors and all of you who came out tonight to participate in democracy. I'm Assemblymember Joanne Simon, and I represent the 52nd Assembly District in Brooklyn, which is home to 30% of the voters in New Yorktown. And I'm the only person in this race who is currently representing Brooklyn, which is 60% of the, of the race, 60% uh, of the district. But I've lived here since 1980s, and I got involved when there was a shooting on my block. I've worked in community as a community leader in every part of Brooklyn that is in New York 10. And my cross-borough appeal is confirmed by the endorsements that I have from people here in Manhattan, including the largest Democratic club in Manhattan. So I know the issues. I'm ready on day one to bring the voices of people in New York 10 to D.C. and not the voices of D.C. to New York 10. I'm a working class kid from a large family where you fight for what you care about. I've start, spent most of my career as a teacher and a disability civil rights lawyer representing young people in marginalized communities. And I'm running because we need a thoughtful, progressive, and effective legislator who's only beholden to the people and to the community, not to the real estate industry, not to Trump donors, and not to lobbyists. Whether it's fighting for environmental justice or um, all of the other work that I've done, I'm happy to share with you. Uh, I'm ready on day one. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Fonda Francis. I am not a politician. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, in public housing. I am an accountant and data scientist by trade with the, uh, with the background in uh, emergency management. And I am here before you today because our communities are not engaged and they have decided to set out in this political process. So what I have done in terms of running for mayor, 
running for New York State Controller, and now running for Congress, is provided a way for people to feel as if their voices are being heard. And I've overcome tremendous adversity in terms of being a teenage mother and homeless by 17. So again, being someone with PhD training. And again, I come to you as a representative of the people, and it is time to send someone to Congress that's going to amplify the voices of the people. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Dan Goldman. Uh, thank you very much for APA Voice for hosting us and uh, lifting up so many of the issues that are affecting the Lower East Side and Chinatown and Asian American communities all throughout this district. We are facing a five alarm fire that too many people just view as a tiny distant flame. January 6th was the beginning, not the end of the threats to our democracy. Donald Trump will run again in 2024 and he will try to steal the next election. And as he tweeted today, that he is most afraid of me being in Washington to stop him. And that's because I led the impeachment investigation of Donald Trump, where we proved our case that he abused his power. And I was down there in Washington defending and protecting our democracy. Without our democracy, we cannot meet the urgent needs of the district, housing, language rights, public safety, education. And we need a member of Congress with the skills and experience to meet this moment. Before I led the impeachment investigation, I was a federal prosecutor right here in downtown Manhattan. And I will bring that service, that public service, which has been the only thing that I have done in my career to represent all of you down in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your support. Donald Trump did not tweet that today. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'm Congressman Mondaire Jones, and I'm running for re-election because our work has just begun. Like many New Yorkers, I grew up in Section 8 housing raised by a young single mom. Since making history in 2020, I have hit the ground running. I'm the youngest member of House Democratic leadership, and I've been named the most legislatively active freshman member of Congress. I'm a progressive champion with a track record of actually delivering results. I've been a change agent in an otherwise gridlocked Washington. I help bring billions of dollars to New York City for schools, housing, health care, and infrastructure. And I've been leading the fight to defend our democracy and to protect the fundamental right to vote. I'm also the guy who introduced the legislation to add four seats to the Supreme Court because I knew we would find ourselves in this moment. I'm running for re-election to represent this community and to make sure that we continue to lead these fights in Congress. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Good evening. I'm so, so happy to be here. So honored to share this space um, because this is my home. My name is Carlina Rivera. I am a lifelong Lower East Side resident and very, very proud to be the current New York City Councilwoman representing the East Side. I am someone with deep, deep connection to this district who has lived through many, many challenging experiences with all of you in this room. I'm a fighter. I always have been and I always will be. I went to my first tenant association meeting when I was a kid. I served on my local community board, and I was a legislative staffer and now a councilwoman and an elected official. I am so proud of the work that I have been able to do, many of it and a lot of it in collaboration with the community-based organizations that are sponsoring this forum. I know that all of the work to be done 
to uplift families is done in coalition. That's how I've passed 25 pieces of legislation in the city council and brought over a billion dollars into this district. I'm very, very proud to be running and I hope to have the support of all of you. The polarization in DC is something that we need to create a bridge to create a better country because if we don't, we're going to be at a, a point where we look back and wish that we did, that we tried to find some common ground before it gets much worse. So I am endorsed by New Yorkers for Safer Streets, and I am 100% dedicated to public safety as a 12-year small business owner. I have management skills, and I'm very at ease in a leadership position. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. My name is Yulene Nil. Uh, I am the assembly member for this district. So I am so glad to be here. I really want to thank APA Voice and Ernabel for hosting. I think that this is an incredible forum and this is an incredible opportunity for us to finally be able to have the representation that we deserve here in our district. And so um, folks probably know that I am the first Asian American uh, elected in uh, the state assembly for this district. Um, I think that it's really important that we have representation because representation matters. Uh, because I was elected, we doubled the amount of Asian Americans in the state legislature. And then we were able to finally get the Asian Pacific American Task Force. And then we were finally able to get our community organizations the funding that we desperately needed. So I think it's really important that we have that representation and that lens to be able to see through. What we need right now on the federal level is political courage. It's the political courage to be able to stand up against, you know, the things that we've seen that are corrupt and wrong, um, the things that we are seeing that are, you know, making it so that we're losing our faith in government. Right. What we need to do is we need to make sure that we have a voice and have hope and have the ability to be able to fight for our communities in a way that is strong and transparent and accessible. And I think that I have delivered that constantly for the last six years. 100% of our assembly district is currently in this new New York 10. And I just want to continue to represent our neighbors in a strong and transparent and accessible way. Thank you so much. Thanks to the moderator. Thanks to uh, the organization sponsoring this. Thanks to all of you for participating. I'm very excited to be here today. Not the, and the, one of those reasons is as I walk past the public library across the street, I realize that that's where my parents, 
two immigrants to the United States met each other. So I have deep ties to this district, maybe not elective, but deep. In any case, uh, tell you a little bit about me. I was the youngest woman elected to Congress when I was first elected, position I held for many years. I was the first woman elected DA in New York City. I was the only woman elected as controller. I'm very proud to have broken the glass ceiling so that other women and other minorities and other people who suffer from bigotry could follow that path. I have a few scars from it, but it's worth it. I wanna say that one of the biggest issues facing the um, Asian American community is bigotry and hatred, in part largely fostered by the former president of the United States. I have always fought racial and ethnic bigotry. I have a long record of that. I will talk to you about it later because my time is up. But that is a critical record and a critical fact that I will bring in representing you in the 10th district if I have the privilege of doing that. Thank you to all the candidates, also for keeping everything nice and short. Uh, so we're running just a little bit behind, which is fine, right? Um, so we're going to start off with what we call our short answer format. And this format is a uh, one where we will choose a topic or I'll choose the topic. And so, you know, I teach public speaking and I know that if you know when you're going to go, right, um, and you know you're going to be last, it, it it feels different, right? When you know that you're going to be last or second. So we're going to change it up. So not, uh, I'm feeling Joanne, you're not going to go first this time. <laughs> um, so actually, Kwanda, you're going to go first. Uh, so we're going to start off with uh, immigration. And again, you'll have one minute to answer. You'll all be able to answer this. And uh, look out for Archer and Caitlin. And as soon as you see the white flag, that means you need to wrap up. So we're going to start off with a very important topic, immigration. So there are an estimated 1.7 million undocumented Asian Americans living in the U.S., including over 200,000 DACA-eligible people and close to 15,000 Nepali TPS holders. So an estimated 13% of New York City's Asian American population are undocumented. What is your stance on a pathway to citizenship for all 11.2 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S., and how would you utilize federal-level tools and platforms to advance comprehensive immigration reform? And also, I know, one minute, um, your position on the role of ICE and CPB, Customs and Border Patrol. So, Kwanda, Francis, I will start with you. Yeah. Hello? So I support a legal path to uh, citizenship and legislative tools. I believe that we need more research to understand like all of the unique barriers that one would have in terms of like a legal path to uh, immigration. And so, yeah, that's what I propose, additional research. And I support a, a legal path to citizenship. Thank you. Um, we are a country of immigrants. My grandmother escaped anti-Semitism uh, in Russia to come through Ellis Island and settle in uh, Washington, D.C. with her family, and they worked their way up 
to all go, go and she was the youngest woman ever to graduate from George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C. We have to figure out a way to make this city and this country welcome again for those who seek our shores to chase the American dream. We cannot, we cannot allow Donald Trump to be president again because it was his racist, draconian, xenophobic immigration policies uh, that were so destructive to families and communities all around this country. And in my view, gave rise to the significant increase in hate crimes affecting Jews and especially in the Asian American community. We need to provide a pathway for uh, undocumented immigrants to go to get to citizenship. Uh, we also need to double the number of immigration judges to handle the backlog of asylum. And finally, we need to increase sentencing enhancements for hate crimes in our federal criminal laws. Uh, we cannot allow hate crimes to continue to go at this pace. We must deter them, and we can have zero tolerance. Thank, Thank you, Dan. And I'm going to give one, Dare. You could start with the first. I am the grandson of a Jamaican immigrant to Brooklyn. I hope that he is smiling down at me from heaven right now on the work that they're doing. Uh, this is a real problem that we've had, including within the House Democratic Caucus. There are still too few people with the political courage to vote for Linda Sanchez's bill called the U.S. Citizenship Act, which would put 11 million plus people on a pathway to citizenship. I'm proud to co-sponsor that legislation, and I'm not going to stop fighting until we get it done. I'm also really proud to have helped pass through the House the Dream and Promise Act, which would codify DACA into federal statutory law. I've also called on the president to increase the number uh, that we have called the refugee cap because we need to be a place of refuge. That is our history as a nation, and we cannot abandon that history. It is what makes us the beautifully diverse, vibrant nation that we are today. And we also, to the other part of your question, need to make sure that ICE is held accountable. I have stood up to ICE repeatedly. I have kept them from deporting at least one of my constituents in the past, and that is the kind of energy that a representative for this district needs to be bringing to the table. Thank you for the question. So some of the things I've been able to do um, as an elected official locally is uh, a campaign called Our City, Our Vote to further enfranchise our immigrant population to have the ability to vote in municipal elections. And it's important to keep that progress, to keep moving forward. To hold ICE accountable, I held an emergency hearing when we found out that they were present in our hospital systems where people should feel their safest. So I'm going to continue that advocacy as your member in Congress, absolutely supporting DACA, Biden's U.S. Citizenship Act. The American Dream and Promise Act is an important piece of legislation. It was authored by Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez, who has endorsed me in this race, and I'm very proud of that endorsement, as well as Congressman Adriano Espaya who is the first undocumented congressperson and proudly represents Uptown. And, when, it, and we, when we look at what Trump has done, the anxiety and rhetoric that he instilled in our communities, threatening benefits, threatening completion of the census, I've been able to work in coalition to get these things done. And that is the type of congresswoman I will be, fully supporting a pathway to citizenship and comprehensive immigration reform. Thank you. I'm very proud of this city's role in becoming the melting pot that it is, the dynamism that the immigrant communities bring to the city are 
part of what makes it thrive and unique. Um, my family came in also uh, escaping Russia as Rabinowitz, they named us Robinson, it was too hard to pronounce. We didn't care, we were so happy to be there. I wasn't there, it's my family. Um, but that said, we need, we need border control. Um, no, no country is safe without some immigration or illegal immigration barriers for that matter. So for those who are here, we really have to encourage the legal process of immigration. And I always said, you know, a lot, a lot of students come from overseas and they go to MIT and then they don't get a visa to stay after they're educated by some, some of the finest institutions in the world. And we shoot ourselves in the foot that way. So we do need reform, but we can, you know, inflation will go even worse than it already is if we continue to infinitely take in more immigrants without some protocol. Thank you. So I think I'm the only immigrant on this uh, panel. Um, yes, <laughs> I heard a whoop. Um, but I, <laughs> but I do want to say that this is a personal issue for me. Um, Asian Americans are the largest growing undocumented community uh, here in New York and across the country, and this is something that a lot of people have talked about. Um, academically, but we don't have the representation to talk about it politically. And I think that it's really important that we are having inclusion in that matter. We need to make sure that we are, on the state level, we have already passed the DREAM Act. On the uh, state level, we also passed Green Light Bill. On the state level, we've also looked at literal, a lot of different ways to have language access. I think it's really important that we have all of these things on the federal level. We need to make sure that we have immigrant legal services. Um, we were able to get a certain amount of dollars for le le uh, legal immigrant services for uh, our um, communities, but we actually did not include Asian Americans until we were able to finally get dollars um, separate for us uh, on the state level. And so these are the ways that representation matters and the lens matters for us to make sure that we are having that representation on the federal level. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think you can tell from my former remarks that um, immigration rights are very dear to me and for my family as well. Uh, I have a long record here. We know, everybody in this room knows how immigration has enriched this country in so many ways we can't even count them. And without, so as far as I'm concerned, I'm for expanding refugee numbers, I'm for expanding immigration. It will improve our economy. It will improve our society. But I actually have a record. When I was chair of the Immigration Committee, many of you will remember, there was an outflux of boat people from Vietnam. Most of them were ethnic Chinese. I played a key role at, in that crisis in the admission of all, close to a million refugees from Southeast Asia into the United States, many of them coming to New York City. I'm very proud of that record. I also was, was responsible for the paroling of refugees into the United States from Iran. I was also involved in the paroling of Soviet Jews into the United States. So I've got a long, long record of fighting for the admission, not just talking about it, but actually bringing refugees and immigrants to this country. And I'm proud of it. And I will stand up for that in the future as I have in the past. Thank you. And Joanne? Thank you very much. 
Um, I, too, would uh, support a pathway to citizenship. We are a nation of immigrants. I am the grandchild of immigrants to this country. Um, and we are all enriched by immigration. So, yes, I would expand a pathway to citizenship. And, yes, I would expand refugees. I would also eliminate uh, Section 1325 of our immigration law, which currently criminalizes people coming in who are not authorized to come into uh, the United States. And that is how we ended up with DACA. That is how we end up with so much of the persecution of undocumented uh, uh, people who are here in our country. Um, I do agree that there is hate crime that we need to address. And at the state level, I have uh, passed a law that um, would eliminate uh, the would create a rebuttable presumption so that we would be easier for us to prosecute hate crimes in New York State. And of course, I also am a co-sponsor of the bill to allow uh, voting in municipal elections by, undoc by uh, undocumented uh, members of, the, of New York City. Um, and so I'm looking forward to uh, continuing that work with you. That, this one still doesn't work. Hello, hello. Oh, is it on? Oh, I wanted, I wanted my voice to sound louder. I kind of like my voice. See, I like the way it sounds here, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. So that was immigration. And I know some of you already um, touched upon this topic, but we're moving on to anti-Asian violence. And I don't know if you can see behind you, it's actually right there, um, everything that I'm talking about here. So um, as I had previously mentioned, there is a very large Asian American, Asian population here that resides in the district if you are elected. And according to the COVID-19 Community Health Resources and Needs Assessment Report conducted by the NYU Center for the Study of Asian American Health, CACF and CPC, they found that 78% of those surveyed feared their safety because of racism or discrimination related to the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I, I know personally that when I am walking around, I actually think about my routes and where I park my car and what subway, if I need to take a subway. It's something that I never have had to think about until, you know, the last couple of years. Um, so... What are some of the non-carceral and holistic approaches that you think are needed to address anti-Asian violence? And also, what is your position, and some of you I think already mentioned this, on the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act? So to change it up a bit, I'm going to start in the middle now. And Carlina, you are first. Thank you. Thank you very much, thank, and, and thank you for the question. And I just want to acknowledge your comments because to, I want—I don't want anyone to feel unsafe in their own community, in their own city, when they're walking. And, and thank you for sharing your comment because that is incredibly serious. So non-carceral solutions, of course, it's investing in our communities. The safest communities are the ones that are invested in. There is no question. You can see the difference in Manhattan and in Brooklyn alone with communities that are just even a few blocks away from each other and what people experience. So programming and services is incredibly important. That's investing in our youth, making sure community centers are open late. That's investing in workforce development training. That's making sure that people have the social services that they need because that and our infrastructure is crumbling because we also have to upgrade our subway systems to make sure that they feel safe for people who have to commute and go home. 
We also need small business support. We know we feel safer in communities when small businesses are open and the gates are rolled up. And many of our communities in our Brooklyn and Manhattan Chinatowns are closing early because many of the employees do not even feel safe on their commute home. There has to be a comprehensive, multi-pronged investment in our communities, and I support legislation that would ensure that we are addressing those, those systems, those communities that have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Even before this happened, I was going to vigils for, for, for community members who are experiencing anti-Asian hate and who were victims to tragic violence, and that cannot continue. So a non-carceral solution is gonna take creativity. Um, thankfully, I've thought of this. Um, my federal oversight bill of the homeless shelters, which I think we can all admit contribute to the violence on the streets, um, will help this. Because right now you have 80% of the homeless population that would never hurt a fly. You have 20%, and this is not me speaking, these are experts, uh, you know, psychiatrists, uh, it's a consensus at this point. 20% that are severely mentally ill or heavily drug addicted. And the homeless shelters will take in those even involved in the criminal justice system already without any questions. So these neighborhood attacks that we've seen, including the really tragic one with uh, Christina Unali, uh, these are the things that we can prevent by having a physician on staff to make sure that those who are part of the criminal justice system are analyzed to make sure that dangerousness is accounted for and they're sent to a facility if need be. So, so I just wanted to say that, um, you know, first and foremost, we have all experienced um, so much anti-Asian hate and violence. Um, so, Ernabelle, thank you for sharing what you shared, but um, also my experience. And I think that, you know, what what we need to do is, um, you know, really kind of dismantle a lot of that thinking about who belongs and who doesn't. And I think that that's really where it stems, right? Um, a lot of the anti-Asian hate that we are experiencing in this country, yes, Donald Trump exacerbated, yes, congressional members exacerbated, yes, we heard this rhetoric before, but the fact of the matter is we have state-sanctioned racism. It's embedded into our every single piece of legislation. The fact of the matter is, you know, from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Japanese internment, we are seeing basically what's happening as a result of our country's history. And I think that it's so important for us um, to make sure that we are dismantling piece by piece that hatred. And so that's coming with investing in our communities, making sure that we have the dollars that we were able to bring on the state level, for example, the 30 million, but we have to also make sure that we're continuing to fund our communities in a way that is actually impactful. Um, I also wanted to mention that we did not, I, I did not get to say that, you know, I'm actually helping to uh, right now, you know, try to make sure that ICE is in the courthouse. We didn't actually get to, I'm so sorry, I didn't, there were so many topics on that other question. Don't worry, um, there's, and there's plenty I, of stuff happening. Later. <laughs> yes, and I'm also trying to eliminate ICE. And I think that, you know, that's also um, making it so that certain people feel like they can't belong. And we have to make sure to end the model minority myth and the perpetual foreigner syndrome. Thank you. Another question. It's a really important one. I have to say that, although I'm not Asian, I'm Jewish, and I was beaten up on the way to Hebrew school as a child. 
we have to confront the fact or we have to admit that as a country, in this respect, I agree with what Eileen said, that as a country, we have had discrimination as part of the structure, whether we're talking about racial discrimination, slavery, or whether we're talking about the Exclusion Act, or whether we're talking about the demonization of foreigners, whether we're talking, we have a schizophrenic attitude towards foreigners. On the one hand, we say we're a country of immigrants, and on the other hand, if you look at our immigration laws, we're fighting them all the time. Now, I haven't had a chance to deal with ICE because I wasn't in Congress at this time. But I can tell you that as a member of the uh, Homeland Security Advisory Council, one of the things I fought against was the private prisons that demean and mistreat prisoners. I also was concerned about issues of corruption in the Border Patrol. I am not afraid to take on any government agency that misbehaves or abuses its power, but we have to accept and acknowledge the, the discrimination that too long has persisted and fight it. And education is a big part of it. Now they're going to try to stop us from teaching about the, the, the mistakes of the past. And we won't even be able to talk about the Exclusion Act. And we won't be able to talk about the Japanese internment. And that's, it seems to me, a huge danger because we can't accept it. If we don't acknowledge it, we can't deal with it. Thank you, Ms. Holton. So, Joanne, there you go. Thank you. Um, I think, number one, uh, uh, I agree with many of my uh, colleagues here. Obviously, it's investing in communities. We need tremendous amount of public education. Uh, and we need public education that will combat these myths in the general public because people don't even realize how much they have been affected and their lives have been affected and how much they perpetuate systemic racism at every step of the, of the way. And whether that is anti-Asian violence or anti-Black violence, uh, we are, the United States is inherently a racist country. Um, we need to pay people better so that we need to ensure that when we're paying people for the work that they do, that we stop undervaluing the work of immigrants, undervaluing the work of people of color, and undervaluing the work of women. And we can do so much of that by working in coalition with our community-based organizations to ensure that they are part of the, the solution. If we empower their voices, we will get make headway in this fight. Okay, so I want to expand on my research comment because when we talk about various types of hate, there's a lot of underreporting. Uh, folks are not reporting the fact that they're victims of uh, hate crimes. So what I've proposed in terms of uh, doing is performing community mapping to identify relevant stakeholders. Because when we talk about Asian community, African-American community, global communities, they don't exist in a monolith. They are very different and distinct. So you know, establishing a uh, community advisory board um, that consists of key informants and community members. And the reason why I say informants is because sometimes people don't feel comfortable speaking um, on the record, um, whether it's because they are um, undocumented or just, you know, cultural issues of trust. They don't feel comfortable um, sharing their experiences. So um, putting together this community advisory board that would sort of elicit the experiences and attitudes and perception of life in various communities will allow us to be intentional with our resources to really um, invest in the areas that need the investment to not just reduce uh, um, 
various forms of hate, but again, to ensure full economic participation. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. Just to put this in context, since just 2022 years ago, there has been an increase by 368% in Asian directed hate crimes. In 2019, there was one reported, and last year in 2021, there were 131 reported. This is growing exponentially quickly and is due to a number of different things. When I was a prosecutor for 10 years in the Southern District of New York here, uh, I protected and defended a lot of the victims of crime in this community itself. Uh, prior to that, I worked with Michelle Alexander on her book, The New Jim Crow, which is the seminal book on inequality in the criminal justice system. We need a holistic approach to revamp our justice system by investing much more in mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, and education, especially education, as Joanne pointed out, not only uh, cultural education, but also vocational education. So we keep people out of the system. But we also need to then allow the police to do what they do best, which is to keep our streets safe, not be dealing with domestic disputes and homelessness. So the way to combat so much of the hate crimes, so much of the public safety issues is to ensure that people are put in the place where they can do their job the best to keep people out of jail who can be out of jail while also focusing on making sure that our streets are safe, our businesses stay open, and our subways are okay for our children to go on. Thank you, Dan. Dan? I don't know what it's like to be a member of the AAPI community, but I do know what it's like to be targeted because of what I look like and who I love. And Hernabel, my heart breaks because of what you have to experience every single day in the city. New Yorkers deserve to feel and to actually be safe in our communities. And that's what I'm fighting for in Congress and what I'll continue to fight for if I get reelected. I'm proud to have helped pass the domestic terrorism prevention statute through the House Judiciary Committee and the House of Representatives. Rand Paul is holding it up in the Senate, but I think we can get this done. I'm also really proud to support the Nonprofit Security Grant Assistance Program, uh, which provides security assistance not just to synagogues and other places to worship, but also to all of our nonprofits, including the ones that are organizing this wonderful event today. We also note that hate crimes in particular have been facilitated by the ease with which people have been able to obtain weapons of war. It's why we need to pass an assault weapons ban. It's why we need to enact universal background checks. I'm proud to have helped pass the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act into law earlier this year, but we have to go so much further than that. And we also need to make sure that we are teaching the history of discrimination in this country because no one is born with hate in their hearts. We need to make sure that we are teaching people how to love and how to be culturally sensitive and competent and value all human life. Thank you, Mondaire. And thank you to the candidates for answering that um, question. And next we have families. So in New York, um, approximately 20% of children under five live below the poverty level. And in some communities, that is actually as high as one in three. So we're here to talk about the temporary expansion of the child tax credit, right? Included in the American Rescue Plan of 2021, which served as a valuable lifeline for families served by the settlement houses in New York. So having this predictable income through the CTC payment allowed them to pay for necessary living expenses, particularly food and rent, and also 
lifted millions of children out of poverty nationwide. So Congress has allowed this benefit to lapse, even as it has proven to be a um, tool to reduce child poverty. If you are elected to Congress, what would you do to address child poverty? And would you seek to expand the child tax credit, making it fully refundable and available in monthly cash payments? So I'm going to start, Yulene, you'll start with you and you have a, a mic. Thank you so much. Um, so the child tax credit is one of the best things we actually did during uh, this COVID pandemic. And I think that we actually need to not just um, expand it, but we also need to look at other programs like it. I think that one of the things that we actually can do is also take um, and eliminate asset limits off of certain social benefits. One of the things that I've been working on on the state level is to try to pass a bill that would eliminate certain asset limits or raise certain asset limits to make it so that you know people can have more access to certain social benefits. One of those benefits would be WIC. Um, WIC is an incredibly successful program um, that's for women, infants, and children. Um, it is a program that I was definitely, um, you know, benefiting off of as a child. Um, I think a lot of kids who were born in the 80s and 90s were actually benefiting off of WIC. I think it's important to make sure that we can help to make sure that programs like WIC, programs like the Child Tax Credit can continue. Uh, we need to make sure that we have uh, incredible resources for folks because we are going to see um, a large disabling event um, as we go because of COVID. And I think that this is something that is um, happening as we speak, and we need to make sure that we have the resources to deal with it. Thank you. very much for that question. It really raises a whole lot of other questions about priorities in this country and where our money is going to. So let me start by saying that, of course, I would support expanding that. But we have to look at the, the, the structure of what's happening in our country. Over the past decades, our tax system has gotten much less fair. The rich have been exempted. The tax rates on them have gone down. And so some of the funding that could be used for social programs has gone poof. And if you want to also think about it, what's happened to our military budget? Increased, increased, increased. And they can't even spend all the money they get. We won't even go into the waste because they can't manufacture uh, proper um, equipment many times. If When I was in Congress, I was very troubled about this problem. It's not brand new that we're not dealing with people in poverty in this country. It's an ongoing problem, and we demonize people who are poor. We need a minimum wage in this country. We haven't done that. So what I'm saying is that when I was in Congress, I was on the Budget Committee for five years, and I tried to rectify the problem in a broad way by pouring more money into domestic programs. So what I did was propose what I called a transfer amendment to take money from bloated programs such as the military budget and put it into housing education, employment, and the like. Unfortunately, we still haven't gotten to that objective. But until we start raising taxes on the well-to-do, and we saw that, you know, it's going to be, it, it's not perfect what happened recently in the passage of the bill, the recent bill on inflation. Until we properly raise taxes and fund these programs, we're going to always be quibbling over pennies. This program, as you give it a little bit more, that program, we need to have a different approach and understand that human problems are social problems that need to be a priority in our country. Thank you, Liz. Okay, Joanne. Thank you. Uh, 
a couple of things. Uh, we've had some really good ideas uh, brought out so far. Um, obviously, we want to expand the child tax credit and make it fully refundable. It was the, one of the best things we did during the pandemic. And when we invest in children and families, children and families have a better quality of life. We know this works. And we just, for some reason, don't want to keep doing it. Um, I do agree we need to eliminate asset limits. We also need um, to raise the minimum wage. Right now, the minimum wage around this country is $7.25, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, even here in New York, it's 15, and that is still ridiculous. Um, and we need to uh, you know, change our tax code so that the people who have money who have been able to not pay their taxes actually are required to pay their taxes. Those are just a couple of things that we need to do. Obviously, when we do those things, we will be able to invest in our communities differently, invest in our, our children, and invest in affordable housing as well. So community and workforce development is very important. We also need to put a lot of emphasis and in, in investments in K-12 education. I've talked about introducing artificial intelligence and machine learning into the K-12 curriculum to identify student learning styles. We also need to ensure that, that students are uh, exposed to coding as early as kindergarten. This is how we systemically start changing the tide in terms of reducing poverty. Uh, we should expand the, uh, the child tax credit. I think as an accountant that uh, a mother that is able to, I've taught so many women how to invest and realize when they got to $20,000 in investment income for some of them, um, that was more money than they earned. They lost access to the child tax credit. So these nuances are um or things in the tax code that we really need to look at and be intentional about. But again, if you don't have these advisory committees set up, you don't know these things. So as someone that was a teenage mother uh, that fought her way out of poverty and I was good about New York City because people didn't give up on me, the city didn't give up on me, and I'm not going to give up on the future of, of, of and the kids in the city, I'm saying again, in order to reduce poverty, you have to figure out what the barriers are to full economic participation. And, and what is that? Opportunities. Recreational deserts, food deserts, they've been in the same communities for the last four decades. So we need leaders that are ready for this moment to bring us into the 21st century. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, the child tax credit was one of the most effective anti-poverty things that Congress ever did. It reduced poverty uh, by almost 50% or would have if it continued. Uh, it's a great program that we need to fund in many of the ways that some of my colleagues have said, especially by raising taxes on the ultra wealthy and closing loopholes for corporations. But the biggest thing we can do to end child poverty is to invest in our children and invest in, in the our early childhood education and development. We need universal childcare where every child has access to childcare, which not only will help them, the data shows that any access to high quality programs from zero to three has exponentially better outcomes for those children who get them than even if you are to give them better services in kindergarten and beyond. But more even as importantly, by having universal childcare, you are allowing parents with newborns immediately after childbirth to continue with their jobs and their careers, which continues to help the family lift out of poverty. 
So one of the biggest things I will do in Congress is invest in our young, young children. Zero to five is the most critical age, and I will be a vigorous and fighter for those young kids. Thank you, Dan. The issue of child poverty is personal. I was one of those kids growing up below the poverty line on food stamps, raised by a single mom. I am really proud to have helped pass the American Rescue Plan, which cut child poverty in half. And now, having just fallen short by one vote over in the Senate to make this thing permanent, I believe that we are on the cusp of doing that when you look at opportunities in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and in Ohio. We are so close to getting this done, and I'm fighting to continue this. I'm running to continue this fight. I'm also really proud to have introduced the Universal Child Care and Early Learning Act with Elizabeth Warren in April of 2021, which would ensure that no kid in America goes without high-quality child care. For millions of families, it would be free, and no family in America would pay more than 7% of their annual household income towards child care. This would be transformative, and we've got to make sure it happens. We also have to make sure that our schools are providing free lunches for every kid in America. No kid should have to go hungry because they can't afford to pay for a free or reduced lunch, excuse me, to pay for a reduced lunch or pay for a school meal. And we've seen that problem exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely, we have to expand the, the child tax credit. You mentioned food, rent, I always say the four basics that every family should have access to are housing, healthcare, food, and education. It sounds very, very simple, but you can see the extreme wealth disparities just in NY10 alone. And I will tell you that my council district is a snapshot of those disparities as well, demographically and socioeconomically. So knowing the inequities that exist and how to invest in them make me a better legislator and uniquely qualified to take this on, and my story is also very personal. Section 8 housing, single mom, I absolutely grew up on WIC. These are programs that families depend on. And so we have to ensure that we are investing in childcare, in programs all year, whether it's something like a summer rising that continues uh, schooling and academics all year, early childhood development, literacy programs, workforce development. It has to continue through a child's life. Having access to good food and good housing will actually will, will absolutely change the trajectory of someone's life. I know I'm only sitting here in front of you because I had access to those services. Thank you. So being a parent is extremely difficult. And it's a nonstop balance between career and being there for your child and wanting to spend time with them. And if the child tax credit is the difference between a family living in poverty and a family being above the poverty line, I absolutely support that tax credit being permanent. I think that's important, and I would gladly get behind that effort in Congress. Thank you. Thank you to the candidates. Um, we are going to be moving on to the next topic. Uh, and because two people didn't show up, we're actually, you know, okay with time. Uh, so the next topic is a big one. It's housing. And because there are a few more topics, um, when 
Archer and Caitlin raise the second white envelope, right? I will cut you off. Okay, so FYI, I'm not being rude. I'm just going, we just need to move on. Okay, so let's talk about housing. Uh, yes, let's talk about housing, right? Housing is also a big, big topic. So New York's affordable housing crisis continues to worsen. I mean, really, is there affordable housing still in New York? Chinatown is facing massive displacement and gentrification, and it will not only push out long-term tenants, including many Asian and non-English speakers and small businesses, but also disrupt entire communities. Um, my show actually has um, done a number of stories regarding some of the big closures recently um, during the pandemic. So right now, billionaire developers are building luxury mega towers on the waterfront and affordable housing that is being built is not affordable for the average New Yorker, much less Asian immigrant workers. So what existing and new legislative tools will you utilize to address affordable housing and the crisis and the thousands of luxury apartments proposed for the two bridges waterfront? So I'm going to start actually with you, Dan. Um, thank you for raising uh, one of, if perhaps the most important topics uh, in this district and particularly uh, on the Lower East Side of Chinatown, which is affordable housing. Uh, we need significantly more affordable housing. We need better housing. We need deeply affordable housing. Um, I am uh, one of the ways that I will legislate this, the priorities that, that I will have, is uh, to make sure that we are properly funding nonprofit organizations that specialize in affordable housing, in homelessness, and in the transition from homelessness to permanently housed. What ultimately ends up happening is that you do have a number of for-profit uh, real estate developers who are invested in affordable housing in the city. And you have the city that uh, also provides a lot of the land and some more funding. But you can't get what is usually that last 20% of capital in order to get the project done. And that's where Congress will come in. And the Congress can then supply the capital to these nonprofit organizations that manage and run the housing. And this is a way that we are going to have a three-way partnership uh, that will allow us to significantly grow affordable housing in the city. Okay, one dare. We cannot rely on the private sector to build the kind of deeply affordable housing that we need and deserve in this city. We need a federal government that brings its resources to bear in funding the repair of NYCHA. I am fighting to make sure we do precisely that. I worked closely with Maxine's Waters last fall when we got tens of billions of dollars for NYCHA including money to create 300,000 additional Section 8 housing vouchers and the version of Build Back Better that I helped pass in the House. And again, just one more vote, <laughs> one more vote, and I think we're going to get it done next term if we keep the House and pick up a seat in either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Ohio. We also got to make sure that we pass a bill called the Homes for All Act. It would create 9.5 additional affordable housing units nationwide, including many thousands right here in lower Manhattan and, of course, in Brooklyn. And we also got to make sure that we are reimagining what some people in some offices are describing as affordable because we need deeply affordable housing. Okay. Not, not something you, you got, you can only pay for it to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. 
Thank you. That okay? It's soft. Is that one? No, it's if it's on, turn it off. I, I'm not the technical director. I'm just want to. I just want to make sure everyone can hear and that you can hear us clearly. Okay. So this is one of the this is one of the most important issues of our time. It is not just a New York City crisis. This is the crisis across the country. Right now, the average median rent is five thousand. I'm going to reclaim my time. All right. All right, everyone. Thank you for your patience. Uh, so right now, the average median rent is approximately $5,000 in New York City. You need a six-figure salary to keep up with New York City monthly expenses. That is unacceptable. And that is not what our families came here to, to, to prosper, to be a part of the American dream. Whether you've been here your whole life like I have or whether you're new to the city, you should certainly have more access and, and, and lead a more affordable existence here in the five boroughs. So there's a few things we can do. The Homes for All Act is absolutely a great piece of legislation. The Green New Deal for public housing absolutely has to get passed. And I introduced and passed a resolution in the council to support that bill. That is a $40 billion challenge we have in our public housing system just here in New York City. And so you can check the receipts of who has invested in public housing. Unfortunately, over many years, Washington has not come correct, but we, there's hope on the horizon, I feel. The state has not put in their piece either, and the city is trying to keep up with massive repairs that are needed in these units. Just here in New York City, tens of thousands of families are living in unacceptable conditions and need support. Thank you. So Carleen. we should pass legislation linking federal dollars to non-restrictive housing. Thank you. So affordable housing is absolutely a necessary component of being a first world compassionate society. That said, I'm somebody who has a finance background and I like to look under the hood. And when I look, I see 90% of the NYCHA budget going to a consultant fee. So we can talk all we want about fixing the disrepair of NYCHA buildings. But in reality, we need to manage the money better. And if that takes federal oversight, then that's, what's, that's what it's going to take. We can't just throw money at a problem and hope it gets better without looking at the inner mechanics. And for that reason, I, I think we, we need to look at things a little bit differently. And we need to empower community boards to deal and negotiate better with developers. Thank you. Is this one working? Yes. So um, we need to make sure that we actually have more public housing, not less. Our public housing is the actual only truly affordable, deeply affordable, permanently affordable uh, housing that we have here in New York. And that's why we have to protect it. This is the reason why, you know, I was very adamant about making sure that, you know, we push back and push back and push back on some of the uh, privatization efforts of our public housing. And this is why, um, you know, even when people were telling me, you know, you can't get capital dollars on the state level. It's a federal issue. It's a federal issue. It's a federal issue that we actually 
um, we're able to bring over a billion dollars in state capital dollars for our public housing. That was something that I led and something that I will continue to fight for and to make sure that we actually have. One of the things that, you know, um, that was mentioned already was Maxine Waters' bill um, for Build Back Better. She has really great pieces in there. Uh, $70 billion for public housing, fully funding our public housing fixes, making sure that we have more dollars for our Section 8 housing, and then also making sure that we have pathway to home ownership. I think that these are all different ways that we can help our uh, housing prices. Thank the you. other thing that we you, have to make sure is to fight for our rent regulations. I'm sorry. Sorry. And, and, and that's what we did in 2019. Sorry. Um, just a background point. If we don't do something about raising our taxes on the rich and cutting some of the waste in the federal budget, where is the money going to come from for these programs? And that's, I think, a vital thing that we have to keep, all, keep our eye on. I'm very much in favor of fully funding housing. Democratic as well as Republican administrations have written off housing over the past decades. It's time to reinvest in a big, big way. Public housing is critical. Uh, NYCHA is critical. Funds for that is critical and expanding it. But we also have privately owned affordable housing in the city. And that's being allowed to run down. We, when I was controller, we had a program that financed <clears throat> tens of thousands of units of affordable housing in New York City using our pension funds. We never risked $1 and we got, we made money from using our pension funds to build housing in New York City for people living in this city. Thank you. That program has been abandoned. Why can't we expand it? Why can't we get the federal government to urge Thank you, expansion Liz. elsewhere? Thank you, Liz. Okay. So I'm going to hand this mic to you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, number one, one of the things that we find ourselves in a position where most of the affordable housing that is built is not affordable, it's fake affordable, um, and it is built by large corporate developers because the federal government has abandoned uh, investing in housing. So, one of the things I've been talking about for a long time, which will, by the way, prevent displacement, which is a huge issue affecting this community and many other communities. You know, we had fake affordable housing at Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn, and we have lost 25% of the African Americans from the four community boards that were supposed to get that preference. That is a, it's just a classic example of what we're doing wrong in this city. So what we need to do is free up funding and more access to capital for not-for-profit builders because the not-for-profit builders can build more deeply and more units that are deeply affordable. So we don't end up with 80% of luxury housing, but 20% of fake affordable housing. There are many things we need to do to free up those streams so we can redo Mitchell Lama. We can redo the pretty partnership housing and affordable home ownership, among a few other things. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. So I, I agree with you, and I would say that where are our priorities? We talk about Chinatown. Uh, the last deeply affordable housing that was built was in the 1970s. So this is what I talk about when I say research and being intentional. We can sit up here and talk about what we're going to invest in, but again, the nuances of, of how to help people and, and ensure that, again, that we're investing in a way that the average person feels that their quality of life is improving, right, is what 
as elected officials, everyone should focus on. Uh, and again, there's been more, and there's no affordable housing, but there's still proposals to build jails. There's proposals for additional uh, shelters. And the individuals in the community don't want that. So I think that when we talk about priorities, prioritizing the needs of the most vulnerable in the community is a starting point. Okay, so I'm gonna use this mic now because I think it's this, which is strange, right? Because it's the wired mic that's um, acting up. Okay, so let's move on to the next topic, climate change, right? How perfect on a day like today. So um, can you believe it's going to be the 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy? I know we don't wanna even think about um, what it was like here 10 years ago. Um, and so we have consistently seen the severity and reality of climate change like maybe today, right? Um, so there have been serious concerns about achieving climate goals after the recent Supreme Court ruling and what that means for a district so close to the coastline. So what is your position on the Green New Deal and what specific policies do you support to protect your district if elected from impending climate impacts? So I'm gonna start with Mondaire. Like many of the people in the room, I'm sure this is personal to a lot of folks. Um, you know, we're going to inherit a planet that will be devastated by climate catastrophe because people who've been around for a long time have failed to act with the urgency that this issue requires. I'm a proud champion of the Green New Deal. I've also introduced my own legislation called the Fossil Free Finance Act, which would require Wall Street to transition to 100% renewable energy. I'm also really proud to have gotten us along with some of my colleagues this far such that on this upcoming Friday, we are gonna vote for the largest investment in climate action that this nation has ever seen, $370 billion. It's to the point where we are gonna cut carbon emissions in this country by 40% by the year 2030. That is transformative legislation. And it was led by members of the Progressive Caucus, including myself who fought, 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 and finally got Joe Manchin to the table to do this. Okay, so I'm really proud of that. We also have to make sure that the infrastructure money that we are getting, the billions of dollars in infrastructure money is invested in climate resiliency, including in environmental justice communities in the Lower East Side and of course in Sunset Park and in Red Hook. I feel like they're starting to get technical issues when you get to one minute. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good strategy. I'll stop talking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Hurricane Sandy hit our community and our city 10 years ago, 44 people died, 44 people died. And 10 years later, we are finally having Congress make an unprecedented investment. It is about time and it is long overdue. There are many, many things that our city, our state and our nation have to do to address this locally and globally. Eight feet of water came into our communities and now we have the weakening of the EPA so we have to invest in, in social resilient infrastructure, whether that's uh, social infrastructure, whether that's working waterfronts and investing in manufacturing. We have talent and we have organizations in this city that have a vision for what we should uh, see on our coastlines. And we can do that together and move forward. We absolutely have to curb building emissions of car emissions, electrified vehicles, 
and have to make sure that we are absolutely addressing environmental justice communities. Justice 40 tries to do that. It is a good start, but we have to take it further and make sure that we're investing directly in neighborhoods like Lower East Side and Red Hook that were disproportionately affected and are low-lying and will continue to be a disaster if we don't do something now. This is a, this issue, I think there, there are two vantage points. One that needs to be considered is that climate change is a problem and we should certainly invest in sustainable green energy initiatives. But the other side of that, to bring it to a little bit more local D10 view, is that, for instance, right now, I'm involved in an effort in Wagner Park to keep that park open. My daughter plays there. All the kids play there. Uh, the elderly see it as a nice place of refuge. And the science on the justification of closing Wagner Park really doesn't add up. But what was admitted in a CB1 um, meeting was that it would be a major profit generator. So I have a bill that I want to introduce that if you're going to build a resiliency project, you need community input and you need to add green space to the district if you're going to do it. Otherwise, it's going to have devastation like we saw in the East River Park and the community gets devastated and developers take advantage. So as a lawmaker, obviously representing Lower Manhattan, the climate crisis is not um, theoretical to all of us here in this room. Um, we have to make sure that we are, um, you know, talking to folks who have walked through the, fl the floodwaters. Um, we've talked to the small businesses. Um, this is a moment when we have to make sure that also we're bringing federal dollars into Lower Manhattan, right? And, and I think that people know that in Brooklyn um, and in parts of lower Manhattan, we got certain funding. LMDC did not get any funding. We have to make sure that we have federal dollars coming in uh, to help to protect our coastlines. Um, we have to make sure that uh, our polluting companies are also needing to bear that financial burden of repairing the sweeping damage that they have caused, which means raising tax rates on legacy polluting industries. I think that many of these companies, what many of these companies have done is actually very criminal and they are protected by a political system that has allowed them to write their own exemptions from liability uh, for the damage that their fossil fuel extraction has uh, actually caused. So I'm really, really proud to have the uh, support of the Sunrise Movement um, and also triage and making sure that we have a climate uh, bill that will help us uh, just like this one um, that was just passed for $370 billion for climate. And so we need to continue to do that and also hold our fossil fuels accountable. I agree. This is one of the critical questions of our time. I actually have a, a record, a long record of standing up to the polluting uh, oil companies when ExxonMobil had oil spill and Arthur Kill, City of New York wanted to give Exxon a slap on the wrist. And I said, no, we're going to have a tough penalty. And I enforced that. So I'm not afraid to stand up to any of these special interests at all. When I was controller, the city of New York wanted to build nine new polluting incinerators, municipal incinerators. I organized the environmental community in New York. We all worked together to stop this program, and we did. It just shows that where there's a will, there's a way. And that kind of leadership is something I want to show for this community. Secondly, I mean, another thing that I did was also to try to get the FCC to get the the 
oil companies and others who are affecting the environment to describe the consequences of their actions on the environment. That's a critical thing that allows us then to take action against these polluters. Thank, thank you, Liz. Joanne, I'm gonna give you this mic. Thank you. Climate is clearly the issue of our time and has to be a lens through which we see everything. And so uh, one of the things that I've been leading on for years, um, you know, I was leading a group of uh, community members uh, throughout Western Brooklyn uh, to take down the polluting Iguanas Expressway. And they laughed at us for years. And then they stopped laughing at us because, in fact, we could do it and clean the air if we put in a, a, a fiscally responsible and climate just tunnel. But the reality is that we have to keep working at this issue. We have to get all of government together, our state, our federal government, to address the issues of climate. We passed many, many uh, climate measures uh, in the state budget this year and otherwise. I was happy to be one of the leaders on the climate, uh, the Green New Deal in New York and the Green Amendment. And I presented nationally on these issues with the National Caucus of Environmental Legislators. Um, so we need to do this at every level and we need to work together to do this because it's when we work together that we will actually make progress. Thank you. I think we need to uh, track the dollars and and measure um, the investments. As someone that has traveled around this country as an emergency response official, I noticed that there was so much money put into recovery efforts, but not enough put into mitigation efforts. So the same areas flooded over and over and over again. And for me to travel from New York City to whether it was um, Mississippi or it was Texas, because it's very expensive. It, it's, again, an incredible amount of money going into recovery, but we're not intelligently addressing climate change. So we need smarter people leading the government. We need to send some researchers to uh, Washington that really understand that uh, <laughs> We can't, data-driven public policy, we can't shoot from the dark anymore, right? The, the data is there, use it intelligently to inform decision-making, right? Every other, I'm, I am on phone calls with people from Dubai at 3 a.m. in the morning, and they're talking about building a building that's 75 miles long, and we're still here trying to figure out how to stop flooding. And so, I, I have uh, five children uh, that I'm raising here in lower Manhattan, and I am very concerned for their future, and I'm concerned for the, the planet that they are going to inherit. Environmental justice is also a democracy issue because too often our vulnerable communities do not have the say and are uh, bear the brunt of our climate issues. Uh, some of that is happening on the East River in terms of the resiliency project, which did not involve enough community involvement. And so whatever we do around resiliency in our city has to engage the community. We have to make sure that the communities that those parks and coastal ways serve are not displaced. But a lot of what we can do to fix climate change is through investigation and oversight, especially now that the Supreme Court has made the Clean Air Act uh, much uh, less accessible for the executive branch. So Congress needs to do more investigation and oversight, similar to the investigations that I was doing down there, to ensure that our fossil fuel companies, that our 
uh, carbon producing companies are held to account, especially for representations that they make about their environmental efforts. There's a lot that the Investigations and Oversight Authority of Congress can do to hold private companies feet to the fire, Dan. and that will have a significant influence on reducing our, our heating and burning planet. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dan. Okay, so we're done, right? 7.25, guess what? We're on time. But we um, were not able to uh, address two other issues, but still very important, both healthcare and food insecurity, because we have to move on to our next, um, oh, hey, candidates, uh, to, the, to the next section, which is our round robin. Oh, I like this one. I know. It's just we just don't have time. I mean, what do you, I mean, let me ask the organizers. Should we have them address health care? Yes? Yes? I have, oh, they said round robin. Well, you could do it in the round robin. So here's what the round robin is all about. So each candidate will have one minute to ask a question to another candidate who will answer that question in a minute. Oh, yes, I know. Wow. So you can't like ask like this long convoluted question where you're going to you know, talk about all your accomplishments, right? Um, but you'll, ask, you'll choose a candidate to ask a question. Like no one did this last year. Some of the candidates actually were um, asked to answer a lot of questions, right? So be it. I mean, that's just the case sometimes, right? Uh, so the rule, right? So let's say, I'll just use you as an example, Joanne. Uh, you have one minute to ask one candidate a question, and that candidate, let's say it's Kwanda, has one minute to answer. Sound good? Okay. So who has not gone first? Brian, you have not gone first, right? <laughs> yes, so you are first. You will choose the candidate who you want to address. Yes. So I'm going to choose Mr. Goldman. Um, last forum, um, I was pretty hard on Eileen for supporting BDS, and I still think it's anti-Semitic. But I want to talk to Dan about what his actual policies are. Um, I don't think anybody here, at least 99% of us, like Donald Trump. I don't like the guy. But it, is that a congressional plan? Because, you know, I'm more interested in what the voters want. How are we going to improve the district? How are we going to really help public safety, aside from gun control, which we all support? What are you going to do for the district? Um, thank you for the question. I think uh, we're all interested in, I at least am incredibly interested in um, making sure that all aspects of our district get the quality services and resources that they need. But we can't tackle these important problems if we don't have a democracy. And I think that the notion of poo-pooing um, the threats to our democracy right now uh, when what we saw Donald Trump do on January 6th is just the tip of the iceberg, because he's going to run again in 2024. That's his only criminal defense strategy. He is going to try to steal the next election because it's the only way that he's going to stay out of jail. And so if we just say we're not going to address it, then we're going to lose our country and we're not going to be able to help all the people that we want. 
If you go to my website, I have a five-point plan for how we are going to defend and protect our democracy. And it involves a lot of reforms that we need to make. One of them is the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which I helped draft before okay, I Okay, thank left you, Dan. Congress. They'll have to go there to There are no, a number of thank others, you. so I thank hope you. you will go look at that. Okay, so you I leave. Um, yes, you asked the question. Choose the candidate that you want to ask the question. Huh. <laughs> um, I think I will also ask Dan Goldman a question. So we have a very um, socioeconomically diverse district and racially and ethnically diverse district. I think that um, I think that very few people will have the luxury of being able to uh, have the privilege that you do. And I think that people are probably wondering how you will be able to represent them when you don't know what they're going through. And I think that that's my question. How will you represent people who do not know what the 0.00001% feel like? Um, thank you, Eileen. I, I think it's a, a legitimate question, um, and it's one I've thought a lot about. In fact, the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to have are what have driven me to a commitment and a passion and a professional career in public service. As a lawyer during my career, I have had one client, and that's been the American people. I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office trying to protect and defend our communities, our victims, and make sure that the system was level for everyone. I spent a lot of time doing research with Michelle Alexander, as I mentioned, the foremost advocate for uh, reducing incarceration and equalizing the criminal justice system because I recognized from a very early stage that the criminal justice system uh, discriminated against vulnerable and uh, communities and, and communities of color. So I have spent my career uh, focused on giving everyone, especially the vulnerable communities, the opportunities that I have been lucky enough to have. And if I'm elected to office, I am beholden to no one. There are no special interests that will have any control over me. The only Thanks. people that I will be advocating for are the people in this room and the constituents of this district. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Okay. Yulin, can you give the mic to Liz Holtzman uh, and choose your candidate? Go ahead and ask your question. I feel like it got more exciting, huh? Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask you a question, Dan. <laughs> You're going to breathe easy. Um, I've been, we haven't talked much about crime here. And uh, obviously, one of the main factors in crime is gun violence. I have a proposal because I think that would deal with it. Many of us, uh, obviously favor a ban on assault weapons, reducing the size of gun magazines, making guns more uh, safe, have safety features on guns, et cetera, et cetera, background checks. So far, we haven't been able to get legislation. And one of the things I strongly believe in is getting practical results. It's one thing to support legislation that will never get through, but how do you deal with the gun violence? I have a proposal. Liz. I'd like to ask you, okay. Yulene Wu, what your reaction to is. You probably heard me ask it before. The state of New York, the federal government, and New York City all have 
the power to use their buying power to stop gun manufacturers from selling assault weapons, from uh, selling excess guns into the market. Why aren't uh, the state and federal government doing that? And what would you do? Do you support the proposal to get them to use their buying power to leverage uh, making gun manufacturers more responsible? Yes, the state buys, the state and the federal government both buy billions of dollars of weapons from gun manufacturers. They do that because they fund the police. Gun Police have guns, military has guns, U.S. Marshals have guns, et cetera. So there's that huge purchasing power. What is the federal government doing in terms of saying, you want us to buy your guns, you've got to do a better job of being responsible uh, for gun manufacturers. Did you get the question, Yuli? Right. So, um, so I obviously um, support um, the make to, to make sure that we actually get our assault we uh, of weapons off of our streets. I think that we need to make sure that we are having a ban on all military grade weapons on our streets. We have to make sure that we are, um, you know, eliminating gun access, and we also have to make sure that we have, um, you know, the stoppage of military grade body armor. And I think that, you know, yes, we can uh, have, you know, some financial impact on the state level, on the city level and the federal level. And I think that I would agree with you, Liz, on trying to make sure that we actually um, stimmy the, um, the, the effects and hold people responsible. Like maybe we don't buy from particular um, companies if they are allowing for people to privately purchase, for example. And I think that that's something that we can do as a government, but I think that that's something that, you know, uh, I would, I would definitely support. So. Thank you, Legion. Okay, so Joanne, I'm going to give you this mic. And you um, choose your candidate. You'd like to ask a question. Thanks. Um, so, Liz, <clears throat> excuse me, the Democrats have a slim majority in the House where really every vote matters. And the House introduced the Term Act last week, which would mandate term limits for Supreme Court justices and you've said that you don't support uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices. But, um, you know, I don't think, I don't know that you think that Clarence Thomas is going to stop his assault on democracy. So I want to know why you won't support uh, that bill. And would you be the deciding vote against it in a slim House majority? Here's my answer. I don't think it's constitutional. And just because it's got a good objective, I wouldn't support something that's unconstitutional. When I was in Congress, they were trying to, there was a big anti-Korean movement, and they were trying to hold some Korean uh, witnesses in contempt of Congress. And when I found out the reason they were holding them in contempt, I said, I can't support this, even though what they did was possibly criminal. What the question was, was, did you bribe somebody? There's a Fifth Amendment right not to answer that question. And they took the Fifth Amendment and they were held in contempt. And I was the only person in Congress to vote against that because I'm not voting against the Constitution. And by the way, somebody walked in, Henry Gonzalez from Texas. He's, his name was right after before mine. He saw I voted no. I said, listen, go talk to the committee staff. I'm not going to influence you. You you find out. But this is a vote to, to abrogate the Fifth Amendment in this case. 
So if that's the reason, Joanne, then I'm opposed to it. Not in, not in the sense that we shouldn't do something about the Supreme Court. You bet I think we should do something about the Supreme Court. And what I'm proposing is that Congress not take this August recess and go to work right now investigating, finish the investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and start an investigation into Clarence Thomas. And they're not doing it. You're going to ask that question. Why aren't they doing that? If I were in Congress right now, you bet I'd make them do those investigations. Thank you, Liz. Wanda? I mean, that was very interesting because that was my question. Uh, Liz, I think you're amazing, a trailblazer. Uh, and yeah, so that was actually my question that if you don't support ex uh, expanding the Supreme Court, uh, then what other options do we have at this juncture? Hey, Liz, back in the hot that's seat. That's a really good, that's a really good question. I didn't say I didn't support expanding the court. I think that is constitutional. I've said I support that. I'm not sure that that's going to pass. But that's why I'm proposing this as a as a practical solution, because Congress, the House of Representatives, has a majority of Democrats, which means that they can conduct investigations. And it's clear that the investigation of Brett Kavanaugh was cut short because they didn't want to find the truth. It's clear that they that something fishy is going on with Clarence Thomas. And my suggestion here is why not investigate those two members of the Supreme Court? I don't know what we'll find, but you it's possible that they'll find a basis that would make it impossible for them to stay on the court. That could have an impact because one of the things, the objective of this measure, term limits, and the objective of the expansion of the court is to change the composition of the court. That's really what they're trying to do. And my approach could make that difference. I'm not saying it will, but it has one practical approach, but Congress wants to take the August recess. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Oh, oh, Dan, you get to ask the question now. Oh, I wonder who he is going to ask the question to. Well, I would just want to point out, I disagree with Liz, that uh, term limits are constitutional. The Constitution says you, that judges must have life tenure. It does not say that they actually have to sit on the Supreme Court. So as long as they are paid, they uh, remain within the Constitution. But I want to switch to a different constitutional issue and ask Joanna a question. Um, we hear a lot nationally about uh, red flag laws. And the Republicans generally use the talking point that they oppose them because of due process concerns. Now, Joanna's a lawyer and, and I'm a lawyer. We know that you can give due process after you take someone's gun if they are a risk to uh, themselves or someone else. You don't have to do it before. Joanne, I know that you were very involved in getting the New York red flag law passed. And I'm curious how you would address the federal argument uh, against red flag laws and how your experience in getting that across the finish line in New York could apply to Congress. Thank you, Dan. Um, yes, I do think that uh, we can do this nationally. And I would point out that uh, one of the things I did when we wrote, uh, when I wrote the, the red flag law was to ensure that there was due process every step of the way. I think it's important for people to realize that it's not a criminal procedure, it's a civil procedure. So there's no criminality involved, 
But if somebody is a danger to themselves or others, and you can demonstrate that, and every day we see these mass shootings, and it's very clear that these people demonstrated that they were a danger to themselves and others, that we make sure that we educate people about using the correct standard. But the easy solution is for uh, everybody else in this country, every other state in this country, to copy my bill. Now the law since 2019. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Okay, Mondaire, ask away. It's my bill to expand the court. I introduced it with Jerry Nadler in April of 2021 because I knew that we would find ourselves in this moment, not just because I knew that the court would overturn Roe v. Wade, but because the court already had a history of gutting the Voting Rights Act. And so my question for Mr. Goldman is this. If you truly believe that we are in a five-alarm fire as it concerns our democracy, how can you continue to oppose expanding the Supreme Court of the United States? I heard you say that, well, they could just do it back. But that's like being in the midst of a fire and saying, we're not going to put out this fire because at some point in the future, someone may light a match. And the other thing is, related to the point of democracy, if you believe that we are in a five-alarm fire, why does your financial disclosure show that you are invested in Fox News, the greatest disinformation machine in this entire country? Um, first of all, I never, uh, I never said the reason I opposed it is because they would do it back to us. I oppose expanding the Supreme Court because I believe in democracy, and I believe that we need to live by the same rules that we are are preaching and the same objectives that we are preaching. I am, I am, I detest what this Supreme Court is doing. I detest what Mitch McConnell did by withholding Merrick Garland. But if the solution to our uh, disagreement with an opinion or opinions from the Supreme Court is not to try to elect more Democrats, appoint more Democratic judges so that we can reverse that, but is instead to just simply pack the court so we can get the outcome we want, that is anti-democratic. And that's why I don't believe it. As for Fox News, uh, I have actually been on record calling for uh, Fox News to lose its uh, status with the FCC. Um, I have uh, basically, I, I don't manage my money. My investment, uh, my broker does and mirrors the S&P 500. So I have a, a ton of stocks. Oh, thank um, you, Dan. But as, wait one second, because he asked me a couple of questions and, and I'd like to answer. As I did when I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I put uh, my money in a blind trust uh, where I prosecuted all sorts of Wall Street banks, corporate, uh, private companies, et cetera. It had absolutely no bearing on the work that I did. I will do that again. And in fact, I will go further. I will be a strong and vigorous advocate for banning all stock trading by congressional officials. As someone who has been passionate and invested in anti-corruption and ethics reform my entire career, I do not believe that any American should question whether their elected representatives are are interested in themselves more than they're interested in the people. And that's why I will support that when I'm there. Thanks, Dan. Okay, Carlina, last one, right? Last question. Hello? <laughs> that one's ringtone. It could be important. Right. All right, I guess I'll keep it a little light. Um, 
Oh no no the, the next section is really light so you could you you could oh, go yeah, well you could go hard I might as well open up the uh, door. you could like throw a punch no I'm not it's I'm keeping it positive this campaign we have to, it's too challenging the times are too dark we have so much ahead of us I'm running on my record my roots and my relationships and that's why so um I'm gonna ask the question of Liz you were recently endorsed by the New York Daily News they endorsed me as the runner-up. Do you think that it means that uh, people are ready for more women in Congress? Uh, I hope it does. I mean, two women is one and two. That's pretty good. We can't. I remember when I first got to Congress, there were only a handful, and it was pretty tough then. But it's great that having women break through the, through the glass ceiling, opening the road to other women. But we can't just stop at, at dealing with prejudice against women or discrimination against women. We see that there's too much bigotry in the society. And whether it's uh, misogyny or ethnic uh, basis or religion or whatever, sometimes people love to hate. That's why one of the biggest, biggest challenges we have as a country is this rise of white supremacism, the rise of racism, the rise of bigotry, and the efforts we have to make to combat it. And I think the example of giving women a chance who haven't had a chance before is one way of breaking that barrier. I remember when I was running for district attorney the first time, and, women, and people came up to me and they said, Liz, you know, we love you, as uh, we love you. And we voted for you for Congress, for Senate, but DA isn't the job for a woman. And so that became a very tough race. And after I won that race, and you would go to that district and ask, go to Brooklyn and say, could a woman be DA? They would look at you like you were crazy. Of course they would say a woman could be DA. So every time you break the glass ceiling, it opens a path for somebody else. Thank that's you, Liz. really important thing. Thank you, Carlina, for ending it on a high note. Okay, so next comes the fun round. It's called the lightning round. You know, when you watch a game show, by the way, my... A game show appearance from like back in the 90s actually someone found on some like vintage game show channel i thought no one would ever see me lose um and again now you could actually watch me in all my glory losing in a game called classic concentration which okay so this is called the lightning round and so these are short quick answers i'm going to ask the question and then i'm just going to go down joanne all the way down and then we're going to start with Liz and all the way back down right um like a ladder and these should be short, like one word or one sentence answers. Um, okay, ready for the lightning round? Yes, let's have some fun now. Yeah, there, I know, need to, yes, <laughs> wake everyone up. Okay, so first question is, and some of you already answered this question, would you support legislation to expand the Supreme Court? Yes. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Yes, but with reservations, it could backfire. Yes. Yes, but I want these two justices investigated now. Okay, so and now, Liz, we're going to start off with you. Name one Asian American that has made a difference in U.S. history. Mm, well... Um, okay, thinking on his name, but the wonderful Secretary of Transportation, 
who was uh, Norman, Norman Etta. Yes, sorry. I served with him. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. And I loved him not because he was a decent and caring person, but because he was the one who introduced the act to provide reparations for Japanese who were interned. That was also an ugly part of our history. And that's something also we have to do. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Yuli. Yes. There are so many I can name, but I, <laughs> but I will give my props to Mabel Lee from our very own district, who our post office is named after and rode a horse down the streets of Chinatown in order to fight for the women's right to vote, um, which she didn't get for her entire life. Mm -hmm. Now, the question was, um, who is an inspiration? Who's your number one inspiration? Not inspiration that has made a difference in U.S. history. Not necessarily your inspiration. I want to I keep it on a more local level. I admire and absolutely respect Jan Lee, who has been a tremendous activist in the Chinatown community. Uh, this is a man who always fights the good fight. He doesn't take sides. Uh, based on passion, he takes sides based on reason, and he has been a fighter for the Asian American community, specifically in Chinatown, more than anybody I know. So he, he is one of my heroes. I would say Gary Locke, the first Chinese American governor. He has endorsed my campaign. But um, I, I would I would say my colleague and friend and a, a real fighter for New Yorkers and a legislative leader in the Congress, Grace May. I would say uh, a friend and uh, someone who I worked with during the impeachment investigation, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu. I would say um, Leon Chulo. He is a computer scientist and responsible for some of the most fascinating theories in academia. And I would say uh, Senator Dan, I know you, I always had to, in a way, that's what I thought, and then I thought I didn't change it. Because uh, he was one of the leaders in the fight to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act and was himself a, a member of, of the Senate with a disability. Thank you, candidates, and thank you for not saying Bruce Lee, and that's an inside joke for those of you who might have seen that news story uh, when they actually recently polled people in the United States who they most admire, and they said Bruce Lee. Anyway, um, continuing, and now we'll, Joanne, uh, do you think campaign finance laws need to be reformed? Yes, right now in the, for U.S. Congress, we have really first virtually none. Not really, that's not really true. But uh, Citizens United was the single worst decision that the Supreme Court made that completely uh, brought in this uh, dark area of, uh, our, of our country. So yes, we need to definitely reform uh, campaign finance reform and do oversight. And I support uh, Senator Whitehead's, uh, White House's um, uh, Disclose Act. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as someone here that used thousands of volunteers, to petition for a statewide election, citywide election, and for Congress. Uh, we need to get the money out of politics because I hear everyone say, I have all of these volunteers, volunteers, volunteers. Like, no, my campaign has volunteers because we did everything. All of this in 18 months, petitioned three times to get on the ballot. First is for mayor, second for New York State Controller, 
And then third for, um, for this congressional race was nothing but volunteers. And I'm so proud of the work that we did and um, city, um, city Council District uh, uh, 41, where we actually increased voter turnout by almost 50%. Uh, yes, there's uh, way too much special interest uh, in the, the political system. I also support the Disclose Act, and I support public financing. So we need dramatic campaign finance reform. Yes, and I co-author legislation to do that. Yes, and I support legislation for more transparency. Yes, no question, right? Yes. I definitely support campaign finance reform. I um, confronted the governor on it, uh, and I was called a fucking idiot for it. Um, and I will say that, you know, it's really important to make sure that we have transparency in our fundraising and in how we are financed. And I think that that goes to show for, um, you know, all of my work. And I think that we need to walk our talk. Offer campaign finance reform, and I think one of the worst Supreme Court cases, at least as bad, if not worse than Citizens United, is Buckley versus Vallejo, which said money is speech. Money is not speech. As a result of that decision, people who are very rich can pay whatever they want for a campaign. We need a level playing field. And they and they um, stopped. We had expenditure limits on the first campaign finance bill and the Supreme Court removed them. If we had expenditure limits, the special interest wouldn't have as much influence because you wouldn't be able to spend as much money and you wouldn't need their support. It would help our democracy. And instead, we'd have a Supreme Court that's stuck. Okay, so let's turn to a fun question. Um, so let's start with Liz and go down the ladder again. What is or where is your favorite restaurant in the district? And you know what is? Give us your Yelp review. No, okay, no, just a just a place. <laughs> I love finding new restaurants, so I'm not gonna just limit myself to that. I just say the wonderful thing about this district it has wonderful restaurants, but that's true about New York City. Uh, right now, I like Rucola, which is not too far from where I live. But, tell, you know, ask me two weeks from now, and I'm sure I'll have some other one. And that's what's fun about this district. And thank you. Favorite restaurant? That's too hard. Favorite to restaurant. I'm a foodie. Um, I will say Super Taste on Eldridge Street. That is my secret dumpling spot. I'm sorry. I'm keeping track because we got this uh, question last week and I'm already hearing some different answers, but uh, <laughs> Wakanda Verde, Tribeca, I said the same thing last week, keeping it consistent. Oh, well, um, I I love Casadela um, and I also love Hapki. Um, actually, Liz mentioned a fantastic restaurant. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard. With Kali pizza, like it's hard. It's really it is tough. Um, I would say Yuka and East Village and also Awash because Ethiopian food is my favorite food. Uh, I'm going to take it down a block and down a notch from Brian. Uh, my kids dragged me to the restaurant that uh, they love the most, which is Bubby's in Tribeca, to get the biscuits and mac and cheese. I would say, uh, yeah, it is hard. Uh, Pizzata 
I, we have great pizza. We actually have a pizza that's named after us. And um, the Lancer type. So I'm going to be consistent uh, to Vivian Mosteria on Fifth Avenue, although Rupala is also uh, really close by and really terrific. But there are so many restaurants in this district, really, it's hard to pick any. I know. That's, see, that's a tough question. Uh, the organizers, right? That's a tough question that we ask them. So here's another tough question. Do you support the Two Bridges Community Plan, a community rezoning plan, which is in the process of certification by the DCP, and that encourages deeply affordable development? Okay. From that description, uh, I would say probably, except for the fact that I would really want to read those documents a little more carefully because there are a lot of things that call themselves affordable and aren't, and I'm not going to be duped into that. Thanks. I agree. Need more research. So on its face, based on what you said, deeply affordable. Yes. I think projects like the Two Bridges projects are truly opportunities for us to reshape the whole city. As long as the developers are required to give back much more to the communities, both in the form, of, well, also in the form of green space and public space, mass transit, uh, services, schools, daycares but especially deeply affordable housing. The way that we are truly, the only way that we are truly going to be able to increase affordable housing in this city is not going to be the government alone. We will not get enough money that is impractical and unrealistic. We are going to have to incentivize private developers to do much more than they had to do with 421A. We're gonna to have to have them give back a lot more to the community and that's how we are going to move forward in our housing crisis. I support deeply affordable housing, but I'd want to look at the documents before committing to them. Absolutely support deeply affordable housing. I take every issue, dig in, fight, negotiate. That's how we get things done, community-led. Uh, so to clarify, this is the one that there are two or possibly one giant skyscraper going up that which will block the view of many of the it is right okay so i remember speaking with uh, john frada who's a former district leader in little italy Lori side who has endorsed me and he's not happy with it because he doesn't think the community give back was enough and uh you know if we're going to represent that community we have to know what their issues are and what they want so i'm, a, I'm opposed to it Obviously, I'm somebody who fights for housing, but I also want to make sure that our community input is there. Um, and I think that this project obviously lacked a lot of community input. And I think that, you know, there are four giant towers that they're trying to propose on the waterfront that actually um, we don't have uh, a lot of um, environmental impact studies that are done on what's going to happen when there are four giant towers on our waterfront. Um, and since we all know that the resiliency issues are very real in our district, um, I think that we have to really think about that. And you cannot, like, you know, peel off the back of the senior building and cantilever a giant tower on top of it. And so I, I, I do want to say that we actually have some community heroes in the room, Tanya Castro, who has been fighting um, to make sure that her buildings uh, are being protected. So I want to say thank you to the community folks here who are continuing to fight to protect their um, their residents and their housing. So um, I actually am supportive of the Chinatown Working Group Plan um, for for making sure that we actually have uh, 
proper zoning uh, for our area. Thank you. I too am not going to endorse something without having read the actual papers. But I do want to say that it is it is imperative for one the community to be involved, and the art the idea that all, the all, that government is not going to solve the problems of housing. I don't know how one can say that because the government is giving all kinds of subsidies, is allowing certain kinds of condemnation to take place, is doing all kinds of things. You can't extricate government from this. And if government is involved, then it needs to be playing a constructive role with regard to housing. It has to take into account the community, the environment, climate, and so forth. I, I don't know the details about this, but that seems to me to be crucial because I've been involved with community opposition in, in, on uh, when the federal government wanted to tear up uh, Ocean Parkway and take down the trees. And I stopped it with the community. Okay. Thanks, and that's Liz. the kind of congresswoman I'm going to so we're going to wrap it up with one last lightning round question, and it's just one, one fact, and we'll start with Liz. One fun fact about you that you would like to share with the voters here and also who are Zooming in. One. Well, the funnest <laughs> fact is that I love kayaking, which I haven't been able to do enough of this summer, but the one thing I've learned from kayaking, by the way, is that you can see climate change and the disaster of it up close. Because if you kayak, you can watch the water level rise and the dead trees on our coastline. And the dead trees are a sign that salt is getting into the tree roots, which never were there before. So if anybody's going to close their eyes to the danger of climate, they're crazy. But the campaign is worth giving up the kayaking for this summer. Okay, Eileen. So um, I used to be a karaoke host on uh, Bayard and Baxter and a bartender there. And I now, on uh, East Broadway, they reopened the bar that I used to work at um, called Winnie's. And it's on East Broadway, just down the street. So I challenge everyone here to go and karaoke with me after all this. Um, I got two. One, just one. <laughs> So I, uh, I'm a published author. I wrote a book about ADHD, which I have. Proud of it. Once you learn how to use your mind, if you have ADHD, you find that there's really a lot of power in it, and you harness it and do a lot of great things. Thank you. I've actually karaoke with you, Lee, and I just want you to know I'm not a singer. I'm an entertainer. Okay. Um, that's not my fun fact. Uh, my fun fact is I think many people know I play basketball and softball over a decade and I love sports but I think I love to tell people I have a 30 year old turtle named Freddie we've been together for 30 years and I love him so much yeah 30 years we've been together my boy well, I, I guess I am kind of a singer uh, that, that's the thing I like to do sometimes but not publicly in, in recent years <laughs> so Ernabelle, you, you uh, triggered this in my mind. Um, I used to work on the Olympics uh, for NBC and uh, before I went to law school and during law school, and I won three sports Emmys through that process as well. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, I was just recently named one of 10 women in the world in business to watch. I cannot sing to save my life. 
so I signed and I was a sign language interpreter for years and did several Broadway shows and really loved the musicals because it's all in your hands and your body and not my voice. Awesome. You know, I, like I mentioned, I teach public speaking and I tell my students, you have to end it with a hook like that because people will not remember you, but they'll remember the turtle lady, right? <laughs> They'll remember the Olympics. Um, okay, so now look at, I mean, only five minutes, only over by five minutes. This is pretty cool, right? I'm awesome. Okay, so that's my, that's my secret fun fact. Um, so now we're concluding with our candidates' final remarks. Uh, again, you have one minute for your concluding statement. And we're going to start, you know what, we're starting right in the middle. On air, you're up first. New York's 10th district deserves and wants, I believe, a progressive champion with a track record of actually delivering results. I have been that champion in Congress. I've already helped give billions of dollars to New York City for schools, housing, health care, and infrastructure. And I'm fighting to bring as much of those, as many of those infrastructure dollars to lower Manhattan and Brooklyn as possible. I've been leading the fight to defend our democracy and to protect the fundamental right to vote. I think we need bold, visionary leaders in Congress willing to do battle with Republicans and to push Democrats to fight harder for the things that we say we believe in. These are horrifying times, and this is no time for on-the-job training. I'm proud to be part of a grassroots coalition of folks ranging from Grand Street Democrats to four different labor unions to the Congressional Progressive Caucus and, yes, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi herself, and I hope to make the case between now and August 23rd for your support. Thanks so much. Well, I want to thank everyone for being here today. I, I'm really proud to be a, a product of, of New York 10 and to be an elected official. I will tell you, I think all of us agree that talk is cheap. I am someone who has taken both stances. I don't back down when the votes are tough or the resistance is fierce. I always do what is right for my community, and that is my North Star and guiding light. I deliver. That's why I have the support of Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez, Congressman Adriano Espaillat, Borough Presidents Mark Levine and Antonio Reynoso, Council members Lincoln Ressler, Eric Botcher, and Alexa Aviles, the 504 Democrats, Voters for Animal Rights, Stonewall Dems, Jim Owls Democrats, the New York League of Conservation Voters, UDO, CODA, the Transport Workers Union, and 1199, the Healthcare Workers. But it's most important to me when I announced on June 1st was that I announced with community leaders, people who have made a difference in people's day-to-day -day lives, I did that. I want to keep building that coalition and include all of you here. Thank you for the honor and the privilege of serving. I hope to do that as your next Congresswoman. I, I say this with respect. So, uh, I, I think we have to really ask ourselves, are we content right now with the lives we are living in as it relates to the government here in New York City? Do we think that this country is going in the right direction? Do we think, and again, with respect, everybody at this table more or less has the same platform. And if we're going to vote for somebody who pretty much represents the status quo, we're going to keep getting the status quo. If we want a unifier, if we want somebody who promotes civility, who takes public safety seriously, who empower our small businesses, and who is a father and knows what it is that children need. 
I would say maybe vote, look another way. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out here tonight. I know it's really, really hot in here. So I'm just going to keep it a little bit brief. Um, it's been an honor of my life to be able to serve my community for the last six years. Um, I have fought courageously, I think, in, in, in all the ways that our community has asked me to. And I will continue to fight and be the most accessible and be the most transparent and be the most um, you know, vocal uh, you know, and accessible legislator that there is. And I think that you know we have fought together to make groundbreaking legislation, to fight for our rent regulations, to fight for new sexual harassment laws that protect our workers, to make sure that we are fighting to protect our small businesses and our consumers, to make sure that we are um, fighting to have real gun laws and have the ability to be able to fight for our abortion rights. And I think that you know I just want to ask for you to fight for me now and to make sure that I can continue to serve you. So thank you so much for your support, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to fight to be your Congress member. Thank you. Thank you very much to your and to all of you for coming. Very proud to have been endorsed by the New York Daily News and just today by the National Organization for Women, the latter because of my lifetime fighting for women's rights. And it's not just women's rights. It's all kinds of discrimination that we have to, that we've confronted. When I was district attorney in New York City, I was the only district attorney in America to stand up against racial discrimination in jury selection. And I wasn't afraid to be the only one. It was the right thing to do. I've got the guts to stand up to do it. And by the way, the Supreme Court accepted my argument and gave us credit in, this, in that decision. I'm very proud of that. When I was DA in New York City, I was actually the Brooklyn DA at that time, we, we were the only DA in the state to stand up against marital rape exemption and to require that, marital, that the rape laws apply, apply to husbands who rape their wives. The only one. That's the kind of congressperson I'm going to be. I'm prepared to stand up if I'm the only one. I can work with other people. When I have constituents who are in trouble, I had a constituent, constituents coming into my office thank, and thank crying. You, thank you, Liz. And we solved their problem legislatively. That's the kind of congressperson I'm Okay, now this just took a while. So uh, thank you very much for coming out this evening. It is very hot, and I know you're all uh, ready to, to go home. Uh, I'm Joanne Simon. I represent the 52nd Assembly District in Brooklyn, which was flooded in Sandy, and which holds the, uh, a, the Superfund site here in District 10, which is the Gowanus Canal. Um, at every level, I have stood up for community, whether it's about the affordability of housing and against displacement, whether it's about abortion rights. I'm a former abortion counselor, and we went to, to Albany and codified Roe versus Wade. We need champions to bring a reproductive justice lens and an environmental justice lens to what we do in Congress. Every day, voters come up to me and thank me for making a difference in their lives. That, to me, is the greatest endorsement of the people in my district who are supporting me. But I'm also supported, of course, by Assemblymember Glick, by Margarita Lopez uh, on the Lower East Side, and by active Democratic clubs, including Lambda Independent Democrats in Brooklyn. Um, because I am a fighter, I have stood up to bullies before, the NRA, the Brooklyn machine, 
this New York State Board of Law Examiners that gives out that bar exam test, right? Which is what my, my big case was about. So I have been there for community. I work with community and community-based organizations all the time in coalition. That is the way I have been a community leader, the way I've been a legislator, and the way I will be a member of Congress if I am honored to have your vote. Thank you. So what have I done as a regular person? I've reduced recidivism. I have uh, coached and worked with first-generation college graduates, first-generation college students. I have helped young women beat teenage pregnancy. And why do I say beat it? Because it's incredibly hard to do that because of the policy violence that has just is responsible some for, for so many barriers that again, uh, just stop folks from full economic participation. I have, there are young men right now that are playing overseas. When I first started working with them, they were not even playing on my high school team. I've been in the communities for years, coaching people through adversity. And I'm saying that as a representative of the people, we have an opportunity to send someone to Congress that understands the unique needs of the individuals of, in, our, in our most vulnerable communities. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you everybody for your attention uh, throughout this forum. As I mentioned before, um, I have five children that I'm raising in this district, which really means two things. One, I haven't gotten a lot of sleep for the last 17 years. And two, I am genuinely very concerned for their future, for the future of this planet, for the future of this city, and for the future of our democracy. Everything is at stake now. We are in an unprecedented time where the things we took for granted are no longer, uh, no longer settled. We have to meet the moment, and we need people with skills and experience who can do that. When I led the impeachment investigation, we used new, fresh, and creative strategies to prove the case. And that's what we need in Congress right now to take on the bad faith Republicans and their leader, Donald Trump, who attacked me today because he is most afraid of me representing this district in Congress and standing up to him again. I'm not a politician. I'm a public servant. And yet I've gotten the endorsements from Assembly members Bobby Carroll and Brian Cunningham even though I do not have longstanding working relationships with them. And the reason is because they know that I will not only stand up for our democracy and defend and protect it, but I will also represent every single corner of this district. And my district office will also represent the incredible diversity that we have from uh, the Brooklyn part to the Manhattan part. So I urge you all to vote for me on August 23rd and send me to Washington because together we can save our democracy. Okay, thank, thank you. you, Dan. And thank you to all the candidates for coming out on this very hot night. I have to say, you all look really good still. I don't see any sweat, um, but thank you so much for coming out. Also, thank you to everyone here in the community, all the organizers for coming best thing that you could do after this is what yes vote 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 vote